we are uh, taking a look at the CAG report on uh, coal allocation coming through. The uh, report has been tabled. The total loss uh, estimated to the exchequer uh, has been pegged by the CAG uh, at about 1.86 lakh crores. Uh, and I think uh, we're getting more details. Allocation of 142 blocks according to the CAG has not been transparent. Uh, private companies benefited from delays uh, in bidding. That's a decade-old clip from NDTV. The CAG is a constitutional body responsible to examine how effectively and efficiently the government is using its resources. The CAG reported to Parliament in 2012 that the government inefficiently allocated coal blocks and caused a presumptive loss of revenue to the tune of Rs 1.8 lakh crore. This was followed by a CBI investigation, arrests were made, and amidst the opposition protests in Parliament, the United Progressive Alliance, the UPA government at the time, refuted the claims made against them. Welcome to Research Radio, a podcast by Economic and Political Weekly. I'm your host, Abhishek. Our guests for today highlight how the period from 2010 to the national elections in, in 2014 was when, quote, the allocation of natural resources to mainstream economic sectors, especially mining, was politicized like never before. What did this process of politicization involve? And how was it different from before? Basically, the main issue went from the questions of the livelihood losses that communities were facing or the environmental impacts that communities were facing because of uh, large-scale pollution due to these projects. That's Manju Menon, a senior fellow at the Centre for Policy Research. It went from that to being how these projects and the natural resource allocations to these projects had resulted in loss of revenue to state and central government. So that became the predominant issue, the loss of revenue and, of course, uh, the lack of any prior principles in terms of how these uh, decisions on allocations were made. That became the primary issue of politicization and the questions of losses at the level of community livelihoods, the losses due to environmental impacts, those issues actually got sidelined, even though they were so critical and they had been articulated by affected communities over a very long period. Right, right. And um, looking at the post-2014 phase that we that we then enter, uh, where uh, the government, uh, you know, appointed several committees, and one among these committees was led by TSR Subramaniam, which you've also written how it laid the groundwork for changes to environmental laws, and perhaps focused uh, attention on pre-approval procedures. So maybe if we can understand uh, these changes some more, So, I mean, like Manju was actually saying, you know, the narrative of corruption was was very much part of how uh, the 2014 elections were fought. That's Kanchi Kohli, who's a senior researcher at the Center for Policy Research. Uh, And, uh, you know, this this broadly how how natural resources, how they are being used, allocated by the government. There is there is discretion in that process. There's corruption in that process. There is red tapeism in that process. So that was the broad background through which, uh, you know, uh, we entered into uh, 2014. And uh, I think what the new government did and one of the first committees that the new government in the environment ministry, they set up. In fact, there were several committees set up under various ministries, uh, which legitimized a certain kind of reform process across the board. 
because uh, there was a mandate through which uh, the government had come in. So I think one of the first committees that, uh, that, that, that was set up by the Environment Ministry was the TSR high-level committee. Under that, I think the, the understanding that uh, one needs to incentivize projects, infrastructure industries and other, other projects, by the idea of utmost good faith was introduced because I think the, the committee had an understanding that, you know, projects were victimized by uh, discretionary use of uh, discretionary use of environment regulation. Uh, so, you know, it was there was an assumption that, you know, if you actually uh, ease off processes through which you get approval with, uh, uh, you know, and incentivize that you put in good management measures and, and shift the focus on, you know, faith in, in projects that they will manage the environment, they will mitigate impacts, they will do a corporate social responsibility. The faith was that that we, we, will, we will actually believe you but if you don't do your job right or if you violate, then you will be penalized heavily. That was broadly the principle through which this went, this came in. But, you know, the problem with that was that the manner in which, um, you know, the even the committee's report frames it, saying that, you know, in case there is suppression of facts or in case there is falsehood, all these are uh, subject, uh, can be interpreted uh, uh, subjectively. So, you know, how do you actually prove uh, that there is de- deliberate uh, falsehood or, you know, it is there's a deliberately you have hidden facts or misled uh, expert committees? I mean, it came with a certain ex- assumption, you know, try to re- uh, try to reduce the burden on projects, but in turn also landed up recommending uh, changes that were subjective that could, could be considered to be discretionary as well. Right, right. And and along with these changes to pre-approval procedures, uh, your article also looks at the three ways in which people's ability to participate uh, in the clearance and regulation of uh, environmentally sensitive or impactful projects also changed. Uh, could we learn about uh, the nature of these changes? Sure. Curtailing democratic engagement or right to participate within the environment regulatory framework has to be seen in along with the whole bunch of other changes uh, that that have come come in uh, in the last several years. Uh, some of it was actually had started off in the pre 2014 uh, phase uh, as well of how environment regulation was enforced. So, for instance, uh, you know uh, the four or five kinds of changes that you see that are that we also written in about in the paper in the article uh, is that uh, a whole bunch of sectors were completely uh, put outside the purview of uh, being regulated. So, you know, certain expansion projects either partially or fully. So, sectors were either partially exempted or deregulated or fully deregulated. So, you, there are certain examples of that which which are there in the article as well. There was also a, a move and continues to be to manage how appraisals are done by expert committees. So, you know, how many questions should you ask and how many days you should approve, all those kinds of things. Instructions were being given um, uh, by uh, two expert committees to do and th- how to do their job. The new principle of actually how do you actually um, look at uh, projects that are in complete violation of uh, environment regulation, who have not uh, operated with approvals, how, d- how does that need to be dealt with? And new schemes were introduced for that. And uh, as a result of that, there was a whole, um, you know, whole system of how do you financialize environmental damages is, is what was developed or is in the process of being developed. So this, is, this, this was the larger kinds of changes that you see in the last few years uh, that has come in uh, come in after especially after 2014 that you see so the format of environment regulation is largely uh, this uh, but uh, 
if you if you actually narrow down much more to look at how public participation or democratic engagement uh, uh, and and also responding to your question about how what are the three ways that uh, this this would have happened very specifically one is projects have been exempted from conducting public hearings or requirement of prior consent in the uh, forest uh, diversion processes uh, with, through its interface with the forest rights act so i mean there have been exemptions from public hearings um, under the eia notification or uh, requiring consent under the forest diversion processes for instance one time expansion of projects etc etc so there are many such examples there also uh, there is uh, the uh, second way that this has happened is basically uh, reducing uh, or curtailing or and or reducing depending on uh, the you know uh, the intensity of it is basically um, curtailing uh, public responses on big amendments or big changes in environment regulations so the uh, the proposed amendments to the environment impact assessment notification 2020 and the kind of reaction that it saw because it was introduced during the pandemic the, the public uh, comments period was when people were really struggling with the you know lockdowns etc so that entire process is pretty much an example of uh, how this uh, uh, you know this process went through also the manner in which uh, you know a lot of changes that may be contrary to the parent law itself were introduced through regular uh, through circulars or office memorandums for instance allowing uh transportation of minerals through public roads or, or village roads uh not public roads but, but through village roads even though the primary approval did not have it you know so those kinds of uh, changes and and when you do changes through circulars and office, office memorandums there's no scope of public comments because it's an executive order by the uh, by the ministry third way this has happened is basically limiting public consultations only to written responses so i mean currently public consultations in an, uh, in the environmental approval process is is consists of a public hearing and and uh, and written responses so basically saying that okay certain kinds of mineral expansion uh, will be only uh, up to 20% it's okay if you just take in written uh, written comments which actually is excludes a whole bunch of people who cannot engage with that uh, process of written comments i mean this in many ways is both curtailing the right to be part of environmental decision making and also be able to the the right to be able to influence regulatory design both both were being uh, have been curtailed in the last uh, few years and these decisions must have a debilitating impact on on even the ability of for marginalized communities to place on record uh, their perspective on projects and i'm curious about some alternatives particularly since your past experience involves using community development uh, could you tell us about uh, this paradigm of development through your personal on the ground experience we certainly believe that you know policy reform is not something that happens only in a room full of experts and local communities who uh, i mean in in all forms in in all areas of public policy actually uh communities have uh, a very important role to play in um identifying what the problems are and how they need to be dealt with and those uh, those ideas need to form uh, you know the core 
of how policies are designed. So, uh, you know, this has been uh, this has been our uh, way of approaching policy work uh, for many years now. One of the areas of our work um, has been, and it has been right from the beginning, uh, environmental policy and governance. And so we we have been interested in looking at what are the kinds of roles that communities can play in designing or uh, addressing the huge challenges that environmental policy and governance face in India. One of the issues that uh, we've been engaged in for the last 10 years is uh, the question of uh, the role that communities can play in managing regions which are highly industrialized and you know their their uh, history of industrialization has also led to large scale pollution and other kinds of environmental changes in these areas so in india you know typically what one sees is that there is a lot of uh, there is a lot of public engagement uh, with project approval processes when new projects are being proposed but once those projects are up and running there is less and less interest in those projects. And it's mostly a situation where communities or neighborhoods are, uh, you know, left facing these projects and dealing with them on a day-to-day basis. What we've realized through our work is that in many places, even now, in many places, um, communities are not fully aware of the fact that these projects that are up and running around them are actually meant to be regulated very strictly for their operations and particularly for their environmental performance. So, you know, one of the important things that's necessary to do then is to actually uh, help people understand what those regulations and rules are, which are meant to govern operating projects uh, so that their impacts are minimized and communities and neighborhoods are not affected in a negative way to the extent possible. So that has been one uh, one area of work that we've been engaged in. And this this particular area of work is, is interesting because it helps us understand the number of uh, ways in which communities engage with these projects, you know, and clearly there is such a huge difference in terms of the power and uh, the power dynamics and the, you know, the social and political capital that these projects have as compared to communities. So it's quite interesting to see how uh, communities engage with these projects, especially in a situation where the projects are affecting their livelihoods, affecting their land and water resources around them. Um, and uh, to see what kinds of, uh, what are the kinds of issues uh, that communities prioritize uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, remedies or uh, resolving problems that are caused by these projects. So clearly they prioritize these issues, right? Because um, also in many of these places, what we've realized is that communities also have very close working relationships with many of these projects through employment, for example. So how do they actually balance out this relationship where they are also uh, where these projects are sources of employment or income for certain com- community members. But on the other hand, they also have to uh, hold these projects accountable for the kinds of impacts that you know, they are creating. So you know, our work has helped us understand how communities 
prioritize these issues and how they want to address or get these issues addressed. And that's actually a really important question for policy and environmental governance. And we're hoping that, you know, uh, some of these issues can be taken up uh, when policies are designed for how to deal with, uh, you know, project impacts or how to mitigate the impacts arising out of project operations. Mm-hmm. And is there an example that you'd like to share uh, with us about um, uh, uh, how this plays out on the ground? I mean, one way to also look at it is that what some of the places that uh, we've uh, worked with communities to carry out research is that uh, you you realize that uh, and and um, regulatory agencies have themselves uh, spoken about the limitations of being able to travel to places to understand. Uh, uh, you know, look look at whether management measures have been complied with, the reliance on only uh, for written submissions by project authorities. So it's you know it's almost like a conversation between the regulatory authorities and the project authorities. Now, if you introduce a third party, which is which is affected people uh, who are living uh, in the in the areas who might be working in. Uh, in these places as well, uh, and the as Manju explained. Uh, so, as an example, for instance, if you if there is a site inspection of say a regional office of the Environment Ministry that is trying to understand whether a project should be granted expansion or not, if the the discussion is also with people who are living around these projects uh, to understand how they engage with these processes uh, or with with the project itself. Uh, what could be uh, some of the non-compliances uh, that are impacting uh, people outside the premises or inside uh, have uh, raised occupational uh, health and safety issues with, with, of workers in, within within the premises. Uh, and there have been instances where when regulatory authorities have had these conversations, it has been, uh, been they have been able to inform, uh, the kinds of recommendations that the regulatory authorities have have raised, or you know, whether you've added additional conditions or or held back expansion, saying that you bring certain processes into compliance, and then you then expansions are uh, can be allowed for. There are also lessons that we we know from say uh, when the adversarial nature of uh, uh, conflicts has played up so significantly in in uh, in an industrial accident or when pe- when there are protests. These are instances where if this interface takes place, some bit of uh, that trust breakdown that has that has uh, emerged over a period of time, that may get may get addressed. So there are instances where people have felt uh, part of a process of of, of imp- law enforcement or or you know or or, or accountability. And I think there is there has been a there's been a partnership with government to be able to do that. So I think so that kind of gives gives the confidence that people's own uh, research of the area and there have been submissions that have been made by people affected and working in uh, um, you know in projects together uh, that have informed decisions and i think that becomes a bottom up bottom up sort of policy process uh, and and policy research which becomes uh, significant and becomes a significant contribution based on which uh, government can take good decisions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, as a part of this uh, process of uh, being involved in um, the decision-making process related to uh, projects that affect the environment. You know, regulations also involve uh, subject matter experts. So, you know, there were changes also in the way in which these experts were consulted. So if we can maybe discuss uh, some of this as a part of the regulatory system uh, in place right now. 
This is actually a crucial set of changes that are taking place to environmental regulatory processes right now. And we see that happening across the board. See, environmental you know, regulatory procedures were largely understood to be a balance between environmental expert knowledge and public understanding of uh, environmental problems. It was always meant to be a balance of these two things. But given how, uh, how much the, you know, the public consultation processes have been sidelined in, in environmental regulatory processes in India, uh, that automatically puts much greater pressure on the expert knowledge involved in project decision making. You know, because uh, if you sideline public participation, you basically have uh, reduced the amount of input that can be available for project decision making, which takes into account local realities, local contexts, local histories, you know, and things like that. Um, whereas if, if the project decision making is largely dependent on uh, expert opinions, then a lot of these issues that are important at, in, at the local level, they don't necessarily become part of the decision-making process. And that makes the decision-making process much more technical in nature. And that's, that's not necessarily a good thing at all because, you know, let's say the project is approved and it has to be set up in a, in a particular area. It has to deal with the local context during its uh, period of operations. So to, to not have those factors uh, taken into account right at the beginning when the project is being decided upon, it's actually rather problematic because these issues will come up at a later time. This, this actually puts a lot of pressure on the environmental decision-making process. And invariably, the experts who are uh, sitting in these committees, who are part of these committees that do appraisals of projects, they are the ones bearing the, uh, the burden of incorporating many of these factors into the decision-making process. And actually, it's not possible for them to do it beyond a point because they are not necessarily going to these places, doing detailed site visits before doing the appraisal of projects. They're basically sitting with all these project documents before them and uh, trying to take a decision about whether that project will do well in that particular area or not. This has gotten even more difficult during the COVID period because when the COVID lockdown was in place, many of these expert committees actually operated virtually. So you can imagine a group of experts uh, sitting around a Zoom call and trying to figure out whether you know, it makes sense to put up a project in a particular area or not, and what kinds of implications those projects could have for those areas. It doesn't sound like robust decision-making or appraisal process at all from, from any point of view. And another level of pressure that's put on to the experts is asking too many questions, and that could lead to a delay in the decision-making on the project. You know, as you know, uh, in, in India now, the decision-making on projects has become a race against time. Every step of the way, there are a certain number of days that are given for the decision-making process so that, you know, from, from the time the project seeks approval to the time that the project receives approval, there are only a certain number of days that are allotted. 
so experts are even under much greater pr- pressure now to uh, not ask too many questions and not get involved in this back and forth between project proponents and the expert committee and to actually just you know recommend a decision on the project without taking too much time so these these kinds of issues don't don't really uh, leave uh, anyone feeling that the project has been appraised in a solid way and the recommendation that comes at the end of that process is actually a good one i can't imagine the type of reports that were written and passed during the pandemic using video calls um to get into greater depth of your article i wanted to learn about uh, the way that the amnesty schemes offered by the central government have operated um and maybe a bit also about their implications yeah i mean uh you know we've uh, been thinking about this quite uh, deeply i think and in, in in detailed um, uh, ever since this uh, amnesty scheme was introduced by the government in 2017 and i think in in some ways it is an extension of uh, the process of incentivizing projects so it's you know it's an it's trying to incentivize the fact that you should come into the regulatory system and take approvals but in effect what it's trying to do and ex- and increasingly it's trying to do and you can see that how it's being formalized within the draft eia 2020 now then uh, the changes to the impact assessment procedures uh, and environmental approval procedures is that it's trying to change the nature of environment regulation from prior approval prior assessments to post facto sort of uh, studies and management mechanism so it's almost like it's assumed that uh, if you actually have a listing of all the public grievances if you have a listing of all uh, all the potential impacts even if you study them after uh, an approval is granting uh, granted or a project is actually uh, uh, construction of a project is initiated it can be studied and managed after an approval in a post facto uh, manner so it kind of changes the complete nature in which and the assurance of environment regulation that we we are going to take very thought out uh, research based science based decisions uh, and only then enforce uh, or implement uh, infrastructure industrial projects uh, so it was supposed to be the promise of that balance uh is is actually under complete uh, change and reform right now because the shift it's completely shifting from a prior to a post uh, uh post approval uh, scenario um and i think it it, it this continues as uh, you know to give it does give the impression that uh, the government is actually serious about in, uh, you know environmental damages or addressing and penalizing uh, violators because you know you're suddenly with a flash recognizing uh, x number of projects that may have not have taken uh, approval but you know the the kind of uh, preliminary numbers that an assessments that are coming up in the, in the manner in which the post facto approvals have been dealt with by the by expert committees is that many of these uh, projects have been on the verge of expansions or or have been have have, have had some, some some things to gain uh, by getting uh, uh, approved Uh, through the post facto mechanisms but this is only preliminary sort of uh, uh, numbers and assessments that are coming in and it it definitely needs to be uh, studied uh, in more detail but what what it also signifies and it shows is that the issue of not taking approvals uh, or not being uh, you know operating without approvals can be resolved through a two party contract between uh, between governments and the projects so it all other people whether it is 
you know people living and working in uh, living around a premise uh, uh, and a facility or working in the facility or even you know uh, live, you know are impacted by transportation or something uh, related to that facility have have no say in that process it is it is a contract between governments and the projects it's it's actually a very interesting comparison to make between how the cold case went and what's happening with environmental regulations now that the arguments against the coal allocations uh, was that it was not being done in a fair and transparent manner and that uh, the allocations were being made uh, selectively or there was there was a lot of discretion involved in how the allocations were made and identifying these issues as problems the supreme court actually cancelled 204 coal allotments saying that you know because because this these were done in a very selective and discretionary manner they actually cancelled these allotments but what you see with the environmental reforms taking place post uh, i mean the way uh, the uh, the tsr uh, committee uh, identified the problems with with environmental approvals they also identified a similar problem that environmental approvals be, were being given in a discretionary manner and they were being the the ministry was being selective in how approvals were granted but the um, the solution to that is completely the opposite in the case of environmental approvals basically now the ministry is saying that we will consider even projects that are operating for approvals so you see that uh, they the 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 even though the issue might somewhat be the same that there is a lot of discretion and selectiveness and lack of transparency in the process of governance of natural resources but the uh, the solutions being identified are completely different in this case you know as compared to what was done in the coal allocations case and um, you know as kanchi was saying because the granting of environmental approvals to projects that have been operating without an approval if if those projects are being given approvals then basically what this means is that we are shifting entirely from a process where decisions had to be made before the grant of projects we are shifting from that process and now all we are we will be left with is institutions that have to police projects for their impacts you know so um, this actually puts a huge burden on institutions like pollution control boards or um, other kinds of regulatory bodies who are meant to control the operations of projects from an environmental perspective it's a huge burden on them and even even presently they are quite unable to deal with this burden because there are too many projects to regulate and they are in no position to do that but um, if this process comes through i mean if this reform uh, that they are proposing uh comes through and projects that have been violating are given approvals we are actually then officially shifting to that kind of a process mm-hmm. yeah i think uh, th- throughout this conversation we've covered uh, uh, the multiple ways uh, different decisions have have come together to shift this to this process where projects can kind of just exist um and find a way to deal with uh whatever environmental challenges they have in some very very limited 
states version of state capacity based version of uh, their impact um and it it's a bleak picture i think for the future um and maybe we could at this stage uh, it perhaps is the right time to think about what are some uh, to hear about some steps that researchers and pr- practitioners uh, can take you know in countering uh, some of these uh, uh, dilutions and you know in making india's environmental regulations more effective i think it's um... you know what we've also see often whether it's through impact assessment reports or uh, how some decisions come to be i think a lot of times uh, research by government or planning bodies might be curated to create a certain perception or indicate certain achievements or uh, inform certain outcomes you know the justifications are built through that research so i think uh, one is that uh, i think that kinds of this kind of research needs needs to be much more open to public peer review uh, i think that's that's very important uh, if if that has to happen i think it's important for a lot of research to be public spirited for that it needs to be deconstructed in a way that people understand uh, what is there in highly technical documents it needs to be accessible and i think we need to be conscious of the fact that expertise should not necessarily if you actually understand something much more by virtue of your education or uh, just your experience uh, of having worked on something that should not necessarily lead to exclusion so i mean i think our knowledge and uh, and research based knowledge can be made much more as i said accessible and 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 i think for for people to be able to engage in policy in much more in a much more informed way so i think research can definitely do that the uh, the third thing i just wanted to uh, say is that i think it's very critical that uh researchers and uh, and particularly even policy researchers uh try and develop partnerships with people who understand and experience policies very differently from those who are actually making it so you know uh, this could be how you how people experience economic policies or people experience environmental law and regulation uh or for for that matter uh, judicial directions i think th- those kinds of partnerships will uh, will actually uh, be able to to some extent also break the hierarchy of expertise where uh, i mean there are certain kinds of experts whose knowledge uh, is given much more weightage while taking policy decisions than others uh, who may not be understood as experts thanks so much to both kanchi and manju for joining us on research radio Their article was a part of a specially commissioned series of 5 papers for EPW's annual Review of Environment and Development. I'll share links to their articles and the other articles in the series. I recommend checking them out. New episodes of Research Radio will be out very soon and I hope you tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Share your feedback to us via any of EPW's social media handles or email us at social@epw.in. At Take care and thanks for tuning in. Thank you.